The text we're looking at is the continuation where we left off last week in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier that he, they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the gospel of the Lord. Welcome back to our study on Luke. Um, we're taking the first part of every year and trying to just saturate ourselves in the words and works of Jesus for the sake of finding again the foundation of our faith as we start a new year. We're working through Luke right now, and we're also working through kind of a subsection of Luke that is focused on the power and importance of God's word. So we started this section with the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. You remember that at the end of chapter 6 where Jesus said, a good man produces good out of his heart and an evil man produces evil out of his heart because the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not produce the words that I say? In other words, he says, what is the definitive characteristic of a Christian is not do they have good doctrine or do they have good behavior or do they have passion and emotion about Jesus. Although those things will be present in a true Christian, they can also be present in, an, in a not true Christian, in an unbeliever. And so what is definitive of a Christian, what makes a Christian a Christian is the presence of God's word, that they are hearing, that they are believing, and they are producing God's word. And so last week, we started to see that get played out. Luke gives us an example of what that kind of faith looks like in the faith of the centurion who came to Jesus and said, I don't need you to come. I just need you to speak. I need you to talk, and I need to listen. I need the words to come out of your mouth. That will be enough for me. Now, we're seeing another place where the word is important and powerful. Now the word is what is going to raise this young man from the dead. Uh, but before we get into this text for today, uh, I want to just take a moment to tell you how important this text is to me. Uh, this text was the first text that I ever preached back in my first year at seminary. This was the text I was assigned to preach, and uh, I've preached on it a number of times since then, and it never ceases to amaze me how deep this text is. It's one of these texts where it's like the ocean. You can wade into it just a little bit and, and experience the beauty, and then you can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and find even more of that beauty. And, and so I hope to share that with you today. Um, this is a text that means a lot to me and I think will also mean a lot to you because it answers the most fundamental problem that every one of us has, which is death. So what I want to do today is I want to walk back through the text, make sure you know what's going on in the text, and I'm going to have you kind of mentally circle a couple things, and we're going to come back and zoom in on those things after we've walked through the text, okay? So let's start at the beginning. It says, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as they approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a large crowd from town was with her. So can you imagine the scene? There's this large crowd that is following Jesus. He's just preached his sermon on the plain. Everybody is loving it. They are all about what he's doing. They've seen him heal the centurion's servant. So they're walking with him, this large crowd of people, and they are coming into the crosshairs of another large group of people that is a funeral procession coming out of Nain 
for a young man who is the only son of his mother, who was a widow. A powerful and an amazing scene, and, and maybe it ought to make us think a little bit about how we react to funerals even today. Um, it's very common that if you see a funeral procession, you see the hearse driving through the city streets, that you will actually pull off to the side of the road, just like you would for a police car with its lights on, to let the whole procession go through. They'll, they'll even run through red lights in order to keep the procession going. Except Jesus doesn't, right? Jesus instead does what maybe we would consider a little bit rude and gets in the way and says, actually, this funeral procession stops here. Luke also tells us right away that this man was an only son of his mother and she was a widow. I think Luke includes these details to help us understand the dire situation that she was in. In our situations today, being a widow is obviously not an ideal situation, but there are definitely some ways that a a woman who has lost her husband and maybe has lost the rest of her close family can still provide for herself. Not in this culture. In this culture, where you were really only able to hold a, a meaningful job if you were a man, a woman needed to have a husband or a son or a brother or somebody who could take care of her if she wanted to live in a reasonable way. Now, God had put into his law ways to care for women who had lost the men of their life, but it still was a dire situation. This was a woman who now was going to have to figure out how she was going to make it day to day with nobody in her life to help her. Jesus sees this woman, and the first thing he has happen is his heart goes out to her. Uh, This is super vivid language in Greek. It doesn't come across as easily in English, but the word in Greek literally means Jesus' spleen fell out of his body. Isn't that vivid? Um, Maybe the way we could get closest to this in English is to say like he fell to pieces. Like he was falling apart emotionally as he saw what this woman was going through. Circle that. We're going to come back to that word a little bit later. The next thing that he does after his heart calls out to this woman is he says to her, don't cry. Which is interesting, that's not how I would have handled it. I probably would have raised the boy from the dead, given him back to his mother, and said, I fixed it, don't cry. But Jesus leads with this, right? He leads with these words, don't cry. Again, circle that. We'll come back to that a little bit later. He goes up then and he touches the beer. So we think of uh, dead bodies being put in enclosed coffins. Uh, they would have had a beer, which is basically a stretcher, uh, and the body would have been exposed to the air. This is how they carried dead bodies around before they would bury them. Uh, it was a total social and ceremonial no-no for Jesus to come up there and touch that dead body, not only because, of course, he was getting in the way of a funeral procession, but also the ceremonial law said that anyone who touched an, a dead body was ceremonially unclean, was not welcome in the temple anymore. No one would have done this except Jesus. As he does it, the bearers stand still. And when he does that, he says to the young man, get up. Which again, maybe we don't notice unless we're reading it in Greek, is the Greek word agairo. Agairo, the same word that will later be used in the text when the, the people say about Jesus, a great prophet has appeared, arisen among us. Or maybe you can catch where this is going. The same word that Luke will use in chapter 24 when the angel says to the woman, he is not here, he is a gyro. He's risen. This was not just Jesus saying to this young man, hey boy, sit up. It was young man, come back to life. After he says this, of course, the dead man does come back to life and he sits up and begins to talk Which I think is interesting. There's a number of ways that Luke could have noted the aliveness of this young man to us. He could have said he got down. Maybe he walked over to his mother. 
But he chooses to say that, that the thing that shows that he was alive is he started to speak. And again, maybe, I don't know, I've never died and come back to life yet, but um, my sense is that if you woke up from being dead, you'd be like, I'm just going to take a moment to take this all in before I start talking. And yet the first thing that happens is he starts to talk, and I think that's significant. Again, we'll come back to that. Jesus then gives him back to his mother, which shows the power that Jesus has in giving life. Um, A child belongs to its mother in the first place because its mother is the person who gave gave it life, along, of course, with its father. That's why a child belongs to their parents. But this child had lost his life, and yet now Jesus gives it back to this child. And so now this child belongs to Jesus. But Jesus chooses to give him back to his mother. The language is supposed to evoke in our mind the fact that a person who comes back to life no longer belongs to themselves or to anyone else, but belongs to Christ. And yet, Christ gives us back, which again, we'll pull back a little bit later. Of course, everyone thinks this is awesome. They're all in awe and they praise God and they say a great prophet has a gyro risen among us, which you can't help but hear the echoes again of what's going to happen only a short time later. And this news, of course, spread about Jesus throughout the whole countryside. And this is the text. So this text is about death. Um, I don't think that's hard to notice. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to see that this is a text about death. Um, And so this text is very applicable to, I would say, everybody in this room, I think. (laughs) I think I can go as far to say that. I think there are a number of people, though, specifically that I want to think about today as we study this text and we study the problem of death. Um, The first person that I want to, to think about is the person who's thinking about death as actual loss of life. So maybe this is some of you. You're You're thinking about a loved one who has passed in the last couple years. You're thinking about even a child maybe who has died. Or maybe you're you're thinking about a loved one right now who seems to be on death's door, is staring death right in the face. Maybe you're worried about your own death. You're getting up there in age. You can start to feel your body breaking down and you're wondering, how many more years do I have? You're thinking about death. I think there's another group of people here They maybe experience death differently. It's the daily pain of living. You're not probably close to actually breathing your last and having the synapses stop firing in your brain, but every day feels like death to you. It feels like death because of the physical ailments that you're dealing with, maybe the mental illness that no one seems to understand but you can't seem to escape. Maybe it's the broken relationship that you're living with. Maybe it's your spouse or the frustration that you have with people who you see every day. You're not thinking about breathing your last anytime soon, but every day kind of feels like death to you. I think there's another group of people who this text specifically speaks to. It's those who feel purposeless. It's not that you're getting close to breathing your last, and it's not even really that every day is particularly filled with suffering. It's just that you're kind of wondering to yourself, like, what's the point? Not so much I'm worried about death, but like, why am I living? And maybe this has shown up in in suicidal thoughts and ideation. You've wondered, what would it be like if it it all ended, if I took it all away? Or maybe you haven't gone that far, but you just still wonder, like, what value am I adding? Who am I in this this big story that we're, we're all living out? Why do I matter to anybody? You know, worried about death in the concrete, but you're worried about death in the abstract. Or maybe, kind of antithetically, the frenzied 
who are worried about death, not because they feel like death is coming anytime soon, but they know death is coming somewhere down the road. They know the clock is ticking. And since the clock is ticking, they're running around trying to fill up their life with as much as they possibly can, every experience, every relationship, every degree, every bit of money or possessions that they can get their hands on in order to make them feel like they're okay because they know that life is over soon. And we experience death in so many different ways, not just with the end of our life, but the feeling that death is always with us, that it's in a sense hanging over every interaction, every relationship, every decision, we can't escape it. Did I get everybody? <laughs> I hope so, that you fit into at least one of these categories. If you didn't, don't worry, there's another part that's still coming for you. But I think we can start to see that, that death does affect every one of us profoundly. And yet, despite the fact that every one of us does experience the power of death in our life, we're very uncomfortable with it. You know, it should be like one of the most universal human experiences, right? Every one of us has lost somebody that we love. Every one of us feels death daily, and yet we're, we're so uncomfortable with it. We don't know what to say when we show up at a funeral or we, we show up at, at a hospital bed where somebody's going to die soon. We use language that is euphemistic. We say passed on or passed away. He's in a better place. He's not with us anymore. We often can't bear to say that the person has died. Despite being one of the most universal experiences, we're uncomfortable with it. And the Bible would give us two reasons as to why that is. One of them is positive and one of them is negative. On the positive side, the Bible says that God has set eternity in the heart of a human. In other words, we are programmed, we are set up, we are created to live forever and to never die. This is how God made Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They were supposed to live and live and never die, always wake up every next morning. But you know that that's not how it is. Sin has corrupted us so that now we die in these bodies that were never meant to die. And so we have a deep sense, even if we can't express it, that we're supposed to just live forever, but like a computer with a virus in it or a gas engine running on diesel, things just don't work and we don't know what to do about it. And on the negative side, the fact of the matter is death is the most merciless preaching of the law that you will ever find. By the way, if you didn't fit into the one of the first four categories, this is where you fit in. Death is a merciless preaching of the law. Just to, for a second, imagine I got up here on a Sunday morning for my 30 or 35 minutes that I stand here and I picked on you exactly by name and somehow by divine revelation had known every single terrible thing you've ever done in your life and I berated you for it for the 35 minutes that we stood here. It'd be uncomfortable. You probably wouldn't come back to this church, right? Um, that's what death does to every single one of us. Death says, I don't care how good you think you are. You're not worth it. The universe is going to spit you out of its mouth. You might be rich or poor or seemingly good or seemingly evil or old or young or white or black or, or in some other category that you can think of and, and it just doesn't matter. You're not worth it. You need to go away. That is merciless. Like it doesn't matter how nice grandma was, she wasn't worth it. Doesn't matter how good you think you are, you're not worth it. You need to go away. And death preaches that to you every single time you interact with it. And that obviously makes us uncomfortable, right? Which is why we need to drink deeply from this text. Because this is Jesus' answer to death right here. And so we're going to look at two big points. What does Jesus do about death? And then how does he do it? 
And we're gonna take the majority of our time on that first point. What does Jesus do about death? And we'll finish up with how does he do it? So first, what does Jesus do about death? The first thing that Jesus does is he feels it with you. He feels it with you. Remember we said that uh, the Greek language there expresses that Jesus was falling to pieces as he saw this woman's suffering. The compassion of Jesus runs deep, that he feels whatever it is that you feel, whether it's the, the pain of loss of life or the daily pain that you struggle with or the purposelessness that you feel or the frenzy that you're running around with, Jesus gets it. He feels it with you. You think of those times in the gospels where Jesus lost somebody that he loves. John the Baptist, his cousin who was beheaded by Herod. Jesus had to take some time away just to recover from that. When his friend Lazarus, his good friend Lazarus died, as he came to Lazarus' tomb, he roared in anger at what death was doing to those people that he loved. He feels it with you. And that's already enough of a comfort to know that the God of the universe who came down to be your savior not only saved you, but continues to feel whatever you're feeling. Whether it be little or big, he's there, he gets it. But then he also expresses it through those people that he indwells. It turns out as great as it is for me to stand up here and tell you that Jesus feels this with you, and that's absolutely true. The truth of the matter is Jesus isn't going to wrap his divine arms around you or send you a quick text message to see how you're doing or check in with you on the anniversary of his death. But other Christians will. Jesus does not magically make things happen. He chooses to work through his church to accomplish his work. And so that same compassion that Jesus has, he expects us to show to one another. And so let me ask you, when you hear that someone's loved one is in the hospital and is close to dying, are you checking in with them, texting them that week to say, how's it going? When that person loses their loved one, do you circle that date on the calendar and a year later come back to them, the anniversary of their death, to ask them, how you feeling? Do you pray for those who you know are suffering? Do you send those quick messages to let them know you're thinking about them? Do you take the time just to listen to them, tell you whatever they want to tell you? It's hard. It's hard to feel that way, right? It's hard because we don't have a lot of time in our society, or at least we don't feel like we do. It's hard because it requires emotional investment, and if you're like me as an introvert, that takes a little bit of recovery afterwards. It's hard, but that's who Jesus has called us to be. More compassionate than anyone else in the world because Jesus feels whatever every one of us is feeling. Which is why it's important to be together in community, by the way. Like you're not just here so you can all individually listen to me talk and go back to your individual lives, but this is a body. And the Bible says that when one part of the body is mourning, we mourn with it. And when one part of the body rejoices, we rejoice with it. This is our community. This is our family. We feel it with each other. So Jesus feels it with you, but then he does something even better. He says something about it. Jesus gives you his word, just like he did for this woman. Right, the first thing that he says to her, even before he raises her son from the dead, is, don't cry. He speaks before he does anything. And, and like I said before, I don't know that I would have done it this way. I probably would have healed the boy first and then said, don't cry. Look at what I did. I fixed it. But Jesus doesn't. He gives the woman his word because he is teaching us that what we need is not a miracle, but we need his word. 
Maybe you can identify with the woman a little bit. Whatever the little death is that you're feeling in your life, whether it's loss of life or it's daily pain or it's purposelessness or frenzy, the little bit of death that you feel every day, you kind of wish Jesus would come in and just make it better, right? You wish you would raise them back from the dead. You wish you would, you, you wish he would take away the pain. You wish he would make you feel like you're okay. And the promise is he will. We'll get there. He's going to raise you up into a body that will never die, that is perfect. It is your body 2.0, upgraded and amplified. But first he gives you his word. Right now he gives you his word. Don't cry. It's not fixed yet, but it will be fixed. Trust me. And this is the heartbeat of what we're doing here as Christians. We are here to hear God's word, his promise, that because Jesus has died and Jesus has risen, you will die, but you will also rise. That your life is not just the 70 or 80 years you get here. It is that you are immortal right now and you will continue to live on past the day when your synapses start firing and your lungs stop bringing in air. You're going to live forever with God. The way you were always meant to live. Everything you wish life was, but better. Without death or mourning or crying or pain because that old order of things that we're living through right now, it will pass away. That is the promise that you come here to hear. You don't come here to hear good advice about how to live a better life. Although you do get that sometimes. You get the comfort of knowing that because Jesus has died and Jesus has risen, and Jesus will come again to get you, you will live even though you die. The death will no longer reign in your mortal bodies because Christ lives in you through faith. This is the heartbeat of Christianity, that we are going to rise and I think we kind of get that. I mean, like if you were to be asked like on a test to fill out like what is Christianity about, you'd probably say that, right? <laughs> like I'm going to get to heaven someday. Maybe you would even add the part about resurrection, which by the way is the most important part. You, you would answer that, right? You'd say, well, I'm, I'm here because I know I'm going to die and then I'm going to want to live forever, right? And that's good. Except we get something else in this text. Not just the answer to the end of our life, which in a sense is the answer to those first two categories of people, those people who are actually dealing with the real loss of life or the daily pain of living, like this is the answer to it. You're going to live forever, your body fixed, everything made right. That's the answer to you. But to those last two categories, to those people who feel purposeless or those people who feel, feel frenzied, there's something else in this text for us. The resurrection is not just a future reality. It's also a present reality. The book of Revelation talks about your baptism as your first resurrection. The apostle Paul in Romans 6 says the same thing when he says, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, that in the same way that Jesus was raised through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If you can think about that moment when you were brought to the font as the day where you first died and were brought back to life, I think this will start to make sense to you. Resurrection is not just a present or a future reality, it is a present reality. And maybe this young man gives us a picture into what that's like. You can imagine that young man, he comes back to life and there's a whole lot of hoopla, right, about the whole thing and it's very amazing and, and he gets to come back to his mother and they're, they're happily embracing. I wonder though if like a couple weeks or months after that, he had a moment where he woke up in the morning and was like, what on earth am I doing here? 
But there I was in the presence of God, in glory, enjoying the, the, the angels and archangels and all those who have gone before me. And then I got like sucked through this vortex back into this, this corrupt body that is, is painful and, and feels like death. You think you ever felt that? I think that's what we feel. Right, like we have this amazing moment where we realize what baptism does for us, that it, it saves us, that it forgives our sins, that it brings us into God's family. And then we sort of feel like, well, now it's supposed to be great. Except it's not. It's suffering. It's painful. It's not the glory of angels and archangels singing to God. It, it's, it's dealing with sinful people and our own sinful natures. We sort of get it. So what's the answer? Well, that we were resurrected for a purpose. In the text, the, the, the gospel writer Luke, he tells us that when Jesus raised this young man back to life, he gave him back to his mother. So Jesus possessed this man because he gave him life, and yet he chose to give that man back to his mother because he knew that his mother needed him. Remember, she was a widow. He was his, her only son. Tens of thousands of people die every day. That was true back then. It's true now. Why this one young man on this day did Jesus raise? Because his mother needed him. And even though it was a life full of suffering that, that didn't, well, the young man felt didn't have to happen, he, he knew that he was resurrected for a purpose, to be given back to his mother, to provide for her, to protect her, to support her. And the same thing is true for you. You're not here because God thinks you're enjoying your life. What God wants any, more than anything is to bring you to heaven, to get you out of this place where you're no longer tempted and you no longer suffer. He wants you to be with him. So why are you here? Because he resurrected you for a purpose and he gave you back to, well, press the metaphor forward, but your mother, so to speak. He gave you back to the people who need you. He gave you back to your children, which sometimes feels like hell to parent. He gave you back to your spouse, who you found out pretty quickly after you got married to, is imperfect. He gave you back to your neighbors, who don't really care about you. He gave you back to your coworkers, who steal your work or badmouth you behind your back. He gave you back to your congregation, a group of people who are sinful by nature, but are struggling as they listen to the words of the Savior. He gave you back to people who need you. You're here and you're breathing because God has a purpose for your life. If he didn't, he would have taken you to glory. Now, I think the thing we struggle with in that is that when we think about being resurrected for a purpose or having a purpose in our lives, we think in grandiose big terms. Maybe it's because of social media and we count how many followers or likes we get or something like this, but we think that if we're going to do something for God, it's going to be big. But it often isn't. This young man, amazing moment, resurrected from the dead, to take care of his mom. Some of you have to do that. You're taking care of an aging mother right now. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for him. But fill in the blank of whoever God has given you to serve. That's your vocation. That's whom God has purposely made you and resurrected you to serve. And so it might not be big. It might not be grandiose. It might not be something that gets into a book someday. But it's what Jesus wants you to do. But there's another aspect to this, even in your present state. You were resurrected not just for a purpose, but you were also resurrected to speak. I don't know if Luke purposely 
crafted his narrative so to say that the first thing that this young man did was to speak in order to make some point about the fact that being a resurrected child of the Father is that you are supposed to speak, but the rest of the Bible says that, so I'm going to say that Luke said that. God resurrected you to speak, to open your mouth and share the good news of what you know has been done for you in Jesus, to not keep it to yourself, but to let others know that there's hope in this dark world, that they don't have to run around frenzy trying to collect all the toys or all the accolades before they die, that they have a purpose in life, that they don't have to waste their life just getting by and the next bit of entertainment that they can consume, that they don't have to fear their own death or the death of a loved one, and that there's an answer to their daily pain. You have those words, you have that message, and you are resurrected to speak it. So then how does Jesus do this? Well, the text tells us that he went up and he touched the beer that the the young man was laying on. And of course, that breaks ceremonial law and it breaks social decorum. But I wonder if Jesus wasn't doing that for a bigger symbolic purpose. And I don't know exactly how this happened, but this is how I imagine it in my mind. Like Jesus went up, put his hand on the beer and, and he breathed in deeply and exhaled. And at the exact same cadence as he exhaled, the young man inhaled as if to say, symbolically, Jesus is giving up his life for this young man who once again regains his. I don't know if that's how it happened, but that's how I like to imagine it. But regardless of that, how it happened, that is what happened. Jesus gave his life for this young man. Not in that moment, but only a couple years later on a cross. And he came back to life to prove that he could give life to all people. And the same is true for you. One day, Jesus will reach not up onto a beer, but down into your grave. And he will grab you by the hand and he will say, Egyro, it is time to get up forever. In a perfect world with no sin. That's your promise because of what Jesus did. So let me finish with this. Um, In 1927, the first convenience store was opened. Uh, It was a uh, a store that had a unique name that eventually became what we know as 7-Eleven. It was opened in Dallas, Texas. Convenience stores had never been thought of before up to that point, but of course they took off wildfire because, well, it's awesome to have a convenience store around because sometimes, you know, you just need bread or eggs or milk or something like this and you don't want to go all the way into town to the market, which was the case back in 1927, but maybe not so much today. Like, it was a great idea because convenience stores offered exactly what they said they offered. Convenience, right? Convenience stores were awesome because they were convenient. So it would be ridiculous for you to tell me that the convenience store that's kind of by your house is so much better than the convenience store that's by my house, because that's not the point. Convenience stores are awesome, not because they offer certain things or a really good price. Frankly, you get more selection and usually better prices at the grocery store. Convenience stores are awesome because they're convenient. They're close to you. So let me ask you this question. If convenience stores are awesome because they are convenient, then why are Christian churches awesome? What do Christian churches offer to the community? I wonder if for a long time, Christian churches have kind of been like convenience stores who are trying to make themselves out to be grocery stores. They say, like, look at all the extra things we can offer you. We can offer you this kid's thing or or this program. We have this kind of worship or this kind of space. But the truth is, people can get better versions of that stuff other places. They can get better music. They can, frankly, probably get better community They can get better inspirational speeches. They don't have to come to church for that. 
So what makes churches awesome? Churches are awesome because of this. We have the resurrection. We have the answer to death. No one else has that. They have bastardized versions of it. They have consolation. Oh, it'll be okay. It'll be over soon. They have compensation. Like you get to go to heaven where there's some sort of, I don't know, reward system in place for those of you who are good. We have something better than that. Not consolation or compensation. We have restoration. We have life as it was always meant to be, given to us freely, not dependent on ourselves because Jesus did it for us. You will live forever and you can't find that anywhere else and neither can anybody out there. No one else is selling this and we're not even selling it. So when you go out there and you are resurrected to speak, don't tell people that you love cross of life because the people are so great or the pastor is so great or the music is so great or the space is so great or the programs are so great. Tell people you love cross of life because there you found the secret to death being answered. You're not afraid to die because you know that life as you've always wanted it is yours. Let's not go out there and tell people about all the extra stuff that we do. That's all well and good but it's not the heartbeat of what we're about. This is what we're about. We believe in a savior who can beat death. That's what makes Christianity awesome. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this text, which shows us the power that you have given us through your resurrection, not just to live forever, but to live right now. Help us understand who you have resurrected us to serve. Help us to find joy in that, even though it might seem menial. Open our mouths to speak about the power of your resurrection to other people so they can know what our church is about. And give us patience and endurance as we struggle with loss of life, with the daily pain of mental or physical illness or relationship trouble, the purposelessness that many of us feel or the frenzy of having to get it all done before the clock strikes 12. God, please give us peace and endurance for those things and for all things and make us a community of compassion for each other and for those in our community.